Holy Gospel according to Luke, the ninth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, o Christ. Our adult forum classes these last two weeks were led by Dr. Robert Cargill, who teaches at the university. By the way, we recorded those, and you can access them on Gloria Day Live. I worked through that with, with our tech support person, Doug. I found out, first of all, however, that it works better with Chrome than it does with Internet Explorer, Internet Explorer being the browser that I use, which Doug very gently pointed out, um, dated me just a little bit, uh, which was affirmed when I told him about my Yahoo address. But <laughs> it's good stuff. Uh, you can access that. The topic he spoke of at Forum came from a book he wrote recently called The Cities That Built the Bible, which proved to be a user-friendly and fascinating combination of history and geography and theology in the ancient Mideast with a focus on the rise and fall of the empires and the cities and the religions too, which in one way or another were formative as the Bible, Old Testament and New, was formed and finalized. Like the Greek city of Athens, for example, whose Greek empire was the reason that the New Testament was written in Greek and could be read and understood by people throughout the Mediterranean basin as the faith with its Jewish and Christian roots moved into other areas, they all spoke Greek. Ancient Greek philosophical thought also had some influence on things as the Jewish and Christian faiths moved from their Hebrew roots and worldviews to encounter the things, the thinking of people whose roots and worldviews and ways of thinking were built on the likes of Socrates and, and uh, Plato and Aristotle. Another formative city was Babylon in what is now southern Iraq. Jerusalem and its leading citizens were exiled to Babylon in 587 BC. It was a traumatic 
event in the life of the Jews, but Babylon had a more ancient connection as well. Dr. Cargill spoke of the Code of Hammurabi, which some of you have no doubt heard of. It comes from more than a thousand years before the Babylonian exile and 500 years before Moses, when Hammurabi was the king of what was then the city-state of Babylon, and his code was a collection of laws, very similar to laws, in some cases strikingly similar to laws, which later found their way into the, into the Bible. According to Babylonian religious history, the laws were given to King Hammurabi by the Babylonian god Shamash. Dr. Cargill showed us an ancient engraving of Shamash giving the laws to Hammurabi. Beneath the feet of Shamash, he pointed out, were mountains. Ancient gods, he said, when they met their people to give them their laws, almost always did so on mountaintops. Sound familiar, he said? And the familiarity he was pointing to was the story of Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, meeting Moses atop Mount Sinai and giving him the laws that make up most of the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, including those most well-known of those laws, which we call the Ten Commandments. More than a few of the laws given by Hammurabi are strikingly similar to things found in the laws and commandments of Moses, which I, for one, find to be kind of encouraging. I like the thought that you don't need to be the God who is the one and only God to realize and agree that things like, for example, not killing and not stealing and being truth-tellers and treating one another fairly and kindly are such good things that we're even going to call them godly things. Which takes us to our Old Testament reading for today where Moses is come down from the mountain where he'd gone to meet God and receive God's laws. Clouds and light, fiery light, maybe it was lightning, could be seen by the people down below when they looked atop the mountain while Moses was up there. And they knew, and this too was something that was known to be true by every religious tradition in those days, not just that of the Jews. I'm talking about the everybody knew it truth that mountains plus clouds plus fiery light equals the presence of God. When Moses came down the mountain and shared with the people the laws he'd received from God up there on the mountaintop, his face, says our text for today, was literally glowing with what was apparently the afterglow of having been in the literal presence of the glory of God. His face glowing in the dark like that testified to the truth of whose presence he had in fact been in. But it also, says our text, terrified the people, creeped them out mightily, and so he veiled his face. The presence of God with mountains and clouds and fiery brightness and face shining and people terrified. Well, what do you know? That just takes us a hop, skip, and a jump away from our gospel reading for today. 
which begins. Now about eight days after these sayings. Okay, now wait just a second, right? Because that verse right there just reminds us, before we read forward, we've got to read backward. Because it just reminds us that what we are about to hear is not something in isolation, it is something in context. Which in this case begs the question, about eight days after what sayings exactly did this take place? A quick glance earlier in Luke's Gospel answers that question by telling us that eight days earlier had been the time when Peter had been the first one ever to say out loud what plenty of others had started to think, but they hadn't yet said it out loud, when he said, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. You are the Savior we've been waiting for to come save us. Jesus did not disagree. In fact, in Matthew's telling, he said, you are exactly right. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he did something else too. That being, he told them not to say that you are the Christ stuff out loud. At least not for a while. Because why? Because among other things, he knew that when it came to being the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior they'd been waiting for and so needed, he knew that he and they were barely even reading the same book, not to mention being nowhere near on the same chapter or page as to what being the Savior and Christ and Messiah they needed would come to mean. By way of inviting them to his chapter, and page in the book. He, those eight days earlier, had then said to Peter and the rest for the very first time, listen, I've got suffering to do. And I've got dying to do. And after that, I've even got rising from the dead to do. They didn't know quite what to do with that. He then, those eight days earlier, had gone on to say, if you want to be my followers, take up your cross. You want to gain life? Give life away. And then the final thing he had said on that eight days earlier, some standing here will not taste death until they with their own eyes see the kingdom of God. FYI, the study note in the margin of my Lutheran study Bible observes that the kingdom of God is not something someplace, someday. It is also any place and every place, including even here and now, even today, where the will of God is being done. Some standing here, Jesus said, will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And perhaps just so people know what they're seeing when they see it, someone will post a sign then and put it over his head. And it will say something like, this is the king of the Jews. 
which raises the possibility that the paraphrased but pretty accurate meaning of that verse that sometimes people find to be difficult is that some standing there that day would not die until they saw him die and rise again. About eight days after these sayings, our gospel text for today begins, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and they went up on a mountain. Here we go again, right? And that's when it happened. When he was up there praying on the mountain, says Luke, the appearance of his face changed. It actually started shining like the sun, is what Matthew said, which means it started shining with shininess that was dangerous even to look at. You couldn't even stare at it. And they too both say that his clothes changed into something brighter than bright, whiter than white, dazzling white is the word they both use. And before Peter and James and John even had a second to consider, well, well certainly they would consider because it would occur to them later, that being that, hey, wait a minute, this is just like that time in the Bible when Moses was up on the mountain, they suddenly saw there were two other people up there on the mountain too, and they looked, well, they looked glorious, is what Luke says, and in their glorious, gloriousness, they were talking to Jesus. Jesus, who, of course, at this point was literally shining in the dark in his glory. And it doesn't say how they knew this, but it, from what Peter says later, Apparently somehow, and I'm assuming it wasn't because there was a hello, my name is Moses name tag, but apparently somehow they knew that the two people up there talking to Jesus were Moses and Elijah, which is way significant. Moses, the giver of the law who represented all of the Bible's laws, and Elijah, the prophet in scripture who epitomized all of the biblical prophets. The law and the prophets together then comprise pretty much all of the Bible. There on the mountaintop, says Luke, Moses and Elijah were, in other words, the law and the prophets were, in other words, all of the truth of all of the scriptures were conversing with Jesus about the truth of, in Luke's words, his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. His departure, which he would accomplish, says Luke. Interesting and revealing choice of words, I think. For he, just eight days earlier, had said he would suffer mightily and he would die dead and all would see and of course some would gloat when it happened and what came to an end came to an end and some would weep when it happened and what came to an end came to an end but he when it happened with his words it is finished would not mean it's come to an end but rather it's accomplished Moses and Elijah spoke, says Luke, about the departure he would accomplish when he got to Jerusalem. By the way, the Greek word here translated as departure is the Greek word 
exodos, which is to say that this verse could just as easily and perfectly accurately be translated. They were talking to him about the exodus he would accomplish when he got to Jerusalem. Hold that thought. We'll come back to it. Then, says Luke says that Matthew and Elijah were about to leave, at which point Peter decided it would be a nice time for him to say a few words. What he said was, and Luke points out he didn't actually know what he was saying, but what he said was, Master, it's a good thing we're here. Let us make three dwellings, three booths, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. There's a little bit of disagreement about exactly what Peter meant by that. There's a little bit of disagreement about the appropriateness or not appropriateness of that. But whatever the case, it's pretty clear that he was missing the point. Because Jesus didn't say anything when he said that. But someone else did. Who? Well, I think we're far enough along in the Bible study dimension of this sermon for you to know the answer to that question for a cloud then came over the mountaintop and over them. And it was a bright and shining cloud. Shining bright as Matthew describes it. In other words, what? In other words, before anybody now says anything, mountaintop, clouds, shining faces, fiery brightness, they know. And you do too. I mean, even that non-Christian and non-Jew Hammurabi would have known. God is in the building. And Peter and James and John, in the bright and awesome brightness of the glorious, glorious, gloriousness of the holy, holy, holiness of the presence of God are, says Luke, terrified. They are terrified with terror that doubles down when the brightness then speaks. And what the brightness says, what the cloud says, what God says is, this is my son. And then what the brightness says is, listen to him. And then just in a moment, as quick as if a light switch had been thrown, the brightness was gone, and Moses and Elijah were gone, and the cloud was gone, and Jesus just looked like Jesus again, and he led them down the mountain to go then and lead them toward Jerusalem and his departure. And the not senseless tragedy, but rather the accomplishment that would be accomplished with his death on a cross. Listen to him, the voice had said. Listen to him. Because why? Because in him is something new, brand new, way new, savingly new, grace fully new in the entire history of the world and its religions. Because, of course, a God who comes to a mountain to give laws, that's a story as old as religion. But this story, this is the story of a God who appears on a mountain to direct us not to laws, but to Jesus, who would leave the mountain for a cross because he came to meet us and save us not on the mountaintops of our obedience to God's laws, but rather to meet us and save us in the shadowed and sorrow-hued valleys 
of our addiction to sin. And so, so now soon, now in just three days after these things, comes Ash Wednesday and Lent. And we walk with Jesus toward his departure, toward, remember the Greek word, his exodus. In the Exodus of the Bible's book of Exodus, Moses, by the power of God, would free God's children from bondage in Egypt. Listen to Jesus, said the voice in the cloud. Jesus, who eight days earlier had said he would suffer and die and rise again. Come, Jerusalem, to free all from the bondage that is humanity's deepest bondage, that being humanity's damned bondage to the ways of not God, but of sin. And so now comes Lent, and we begin our walk with him to the it is finished line. Walking with him, what does that look like? Well, if a voice that is the for crying out loud voice of God is to be trusted, it looks like listening to him. And listening to him isn't actually listening at all, of course, if the only thing we're doing it with is our ears, right? For listening isn't actually listening at all until it's something we do, too, with our hands and our feet and our words and our deeds and our actions and our lives, which is to say, what does walking with him by listening to him look like? Well, let me suggest that in a world where so many, too many, are listening to who in hell are the voices they apparently are listening to. Walking with Jesus, by listening to Jesus, looks like leaving our mountains and leaving our churches to shine in the dark with the giving and forgiving love of Jesus, which we know, which we've seen shine on us.